Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that you can be with us for this lesson today. We are continuing our series from the Nazarene Quarterly, and today we are continuing to look at the Psalms. Our lesson today is entitled, The Call to Godly Living, and we are going to be looking at Psalm 15. But before we get into the lesson, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to study your word and to learn from you. And we just ask that your spirit would be here with us, that you would uh, anoint our hearts and our minds in your name. Amen. Our lesson today is looking at Psalm 15. And the lesson focus who does God allow into his presence? What type of person does God approve of? Now, if I ask you the question, are you a righteous person? It might take you uh, by surprise. You know, many of us would hesitate to label ourselves as righteous. But it's important that we understand what righteousness is. And so today's lesson examines that question. Who is righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? How can we be righteous? Or, as our society may put it, you know, what makes a good person? Now, these questions sound pretty simple to answer. You think, well, everyone knows what it means to be a good person, what it means to be righteous. But the answers often are not so easy. There are several reasons why we often fail to understand true righteousness. First, we often don't understand true righteousness because we confuse righteousness with following the ethics and the morals of our culture. Now, we are fortunate in America to live in a society that does have a lot of good values. Americans, for the most part, are a generous people. When an emergency happens, a hurricane hits, some kind of natural disaster, Americans often respond by opening their pocketbooks. They give money, lots of money. And Americans, for the most part, are honest people. They don't steal, even when they have the opportunity. They don't loot. Most people uh, respond by doing the right thing in that situation. Americans, for the most part, are opposed to discrimination based on race or uh, religion or class. And so we can look at different values that our society promotes, and these are good values. However, we adopt these values, and then we believe ourselves to be righteous. But we are adopting them simply because it's the values that our culture believes in. There's no personal choice involved. If we happen to live in a different society, we would adopt different values. You can look, for example, at the, the German society during World War II. Before the war, most of the people in Germany would have considered themselves you know, good, decent, uh, even maybe righteous people. During the war, when society began promoting very different values, you found these same people going along with the slaughter of the Jews. These were normal, everyday uh, people 
but they had no personal idea of righteousness. They were merely going along with whatever their culture uh, espoused. And when the culture shifted, so did they. And so we have to have righteousness as a, a personally chosen set of values. Now, secondly, we often don't understand true righteousness because we use cultural standards to define righteousness rather than looking to a biblical standard. You know, our society identifies certain attributes that say these make you a good person. Good people care about the environment. Good people are tolerant of others. They are accepting of others who are different. Good people give support to causes such as helping the homeless. And these things aren't bad in themselves, but they are not the biblical standards for righteousness. And if our righteousness merely accepts what our culture tells us is righteous, then we don't have God's standards in mind. Finally, we don't understand true righteousness because we accept the idea that righteousness is subjective, that righteousness is up to the individual. Every person can decide what is righteous for himself or for herself. You know, what's righteous for you may not be righteous for me. This is not the biblical uh, definition or the biblical standard for righteousness. The Bible teaches us that God has set a definite objective standard of what it means to be righteous and that he teaches us that in his word we can know what it means to be righteous. And so as we look at what righteousness means, we find several good examples in our text for today. We are looking at Psalm 15. And Psalm 15 begins by saying, it begins by asking the question, you know, who will live with God? Basically, who can be in God's presence? Who can live on his holy hill? And then it begins to answer it by setting out a list of criteria. It begins by saying, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. So we find that true righteousness is always linked with behavior with doing what is right. Now, some of us have the mistaken idea that because our righteousness is based on faith rather than works, it doesn't really matter what we do. We can be righteous and can continue to live in sin. But Scripture definitely teaches our righteousness by faith uh, is not something that we get through our works. But that's a different idea than most of us have. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so we look at these words from Paul and we think to ourselves, okay, if, if our righteousness comes through grace and not through our works, it doesn't really matter what we do. The problem is we think of faith as something that we do with our minds that faith means having a particular belief. But true faith is more than just an intellectual assent. It's a matter of the heart. To believe is to declare your loyalty. Uh, the Greek word that we translate for faith really is more the idea of a vow to a faithful relationship. It carries with it this idea of covenantal loyalty. So the idea is more faithfulness than faith itself. 
in Paul's day, there was no such thing as an atheist, a non-believer. Everyone believed in the supernatural. Everyone believed in some type of God. So the question, what, the question wasn't whether you had faith that there is a God and that God exists. The question was, did you have faithfulness? Were, your decla- were you declaring your loyalty to Jesus Christ instead of the numerous pagan gods that were out there? And to declare faith in Christ <clears throat> had very serious consequences. Uh, you can think of what happens today when, for example, a, a Muslim might become a Christian in certain Muslim countries, or if in India a, a Buddhist might become a Muslim. These actions <clears throat> have tremendous consequences. And so when Paul speaks of faith, he's not merely talking about accepting a particular idea. He's talking about making a vow of loyalty to Christ a vow that affects everything about you. So we cannot accept the idea that faith can be separated from our actions. James tells us faith without deeds is no faith at all. He tells us faith without deeds is dead. Uh, James 2.19 is one of my favorite verses. It says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And so what James is telling us, it's not enough simply to believe in God. You have to commit yourself to God. And that commitment, that faithfulness to God is going to show up in what you do. James asked in chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? In Paul, or in Galatians, Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So in Paul's mind, there's a definite link between faith and love. They are linked together. And love requires obedience. 1 John tells us, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And so true righteousness requires us to act righteously. Then uh, the psalmist in Psalm 15 goes on to make a further description of righteousness. He says, The righteous man is the one who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander. So true righteousness is linked with controlling our speech, with speaking honestly. We really need to take our speech seriously. You know, we need to understand the, the uh, need to control our speech. They estimate that the average person speaks about 16,000 words per day. And I'm not sure whose job it is to count all those words or where they came up with that statistic. But uh, most of us will admit we do speak a lot of words a day. Jesus gives us a very dramatic warning in Matthew. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And later in the book of James, in chapter 3, James talks about the deadliness of the tongue. 
describing the tongue as a fire, a world of evil, talking about how the tongue corrupts the whole body. And then he describes the tongue as being set on fire by hell. And you can hardly think of of a more horrible description. You know, when we look at our culture, we find that being honest is something that that is falling more and more by the wayside. Uh, in, in a recent poll, more than half of Americans thought it was fine to lie to your children if they ever questioned you about what you had done in your past. For example, if you had ever uh, used drugs or if you'd ever smoked or if you'd ever cheated on a test or things like this. They felt it's okay to say no when in fact you had done some of these things. 60% of Americans believe it's fine to call in sick even when you're not. Uh, 37% say it's okay to lie on a resume. However, there are some things that most people would say you shouldn't do. Over 80% would say you should never lie on a tax return or lie to a spouse about an affair. But the things that we consider as white lies or harmless lies, we are becoming more and more accepting of. So lying and deceit is becoming something that's more and more prominent in our culture. We accept it from our political leaders. Uh, It has become almost impossible to be elected in our present day if you tell the truth about yourself and about your opponent. You know, we uh, accept dishonesty on our reality shows. We watch these shows like Survivor that rewards those who are the best at lying and deceiving. Uh, We embrace a false reality on our Facebook pages, and we assume that everyone else is embracing a false reality as well. Now, there have always been people who lie, but we are beginning to assume that lying is normal. It's a part of how we live life. And when Christians especially are caught in a lie, it is especially damaging. We are to be known as truthful people. Now, as Christians, we know that we are to be against lying. And so most of the time, we don't uh, commit out-and-out lies. We We don't tell out and out falsehoods. But righteousness requires a a stricter standard. It's not just in avoiding outright lies, but do we speak the truth? Do we speak the truth from our hearts? So in other words, as righteous people, are we open? Are we honest in our communications? Are we contributing to a culture of honesty or a culture of deceit? You know, do we accept lying from our political leaders? if we agree with their politics. Too often, if we are Democrats, we excuse the Democrat when he lies. If we are Republicans, we excuse the Republican when he lies. As Christians, we should be demanding accountability. Are we transparent in our dealings with other people? Do we try to make ourselves look as good as possible, even when it requires fudging the truth? You know, one of the dangers we face today to honesty is how we participate in social media, when we use Facebook and Instagram and these other things to make ourselves look better than we are, to make ourselves appear more successful, uh, more wealthy, uh, to make ourselves look smarter than we are. 
you know, we post all of these things that we know are not really presenting a true picture of ourselves. And many would say, well, this is harmless. It doesn't mean that much. But it creates a culture where we assume that everyone is lying, that nothing really is what it seems. Another danger that we have to really consider is the danger of reposting or retweeting things on social media. There was a, a video that went viral uh, in, in the last oh, year or so, and it, it was posted and reposted millions of times, uh, a video of Nancy Pelosi, who is the Democrat Speaker of the House. And this video showed her slurring her speech. It made her appear incoherent, uh, as if she were under the influence of alcohol. The problem was the video was a fake. It had deliberately been altered, been slowed down to make her appear this way. But many Christians shared this video and spread a horrible lie about an innocent person. Uh, when we look at this, we have to realize we have a distinct responsibility. And it may not be one that we keep in mind uh, often, but when we share online, when we share in text, uh, even in person, what we communicate is a direct reflection of our, of our life of faith. When we spread information that's false or that's based on a lie, we are just as culpable. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, when we use social media, are we contributing to honesty or to lies? Now, True righteousness is linked with using our speech to spread the truth, but it goes beyond that. We are also to use our speech to build up our neighbor and not to tear them down. The psalmist goes on to say, The righteous man is one who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. So our obligation to righteous speech goes beyond just telling the truth. We have to look at whether our speech will be helpful or harmful. And one of the most important ways that we can show grace or mercy is by protecting someone's reputation. We don't have to necessarily tell everything we know. So the tongue can be a deadly evil, but we also need to point out the tongue can be an instrument of grace. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 12, 18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we can use our words to give grace and I like the way that Scott Hubbard uh, uses this. He says, we can use our words to carry Jesus' redeeming work into someone else's life. And then he makes the point, God used words to create this world. In Genesis, we read, you know, that God spoke and it was so. God's speech brought all of this into existence. Our words can actually bring a new world into reality. We can create something new in the life of another person. It may be that our speech makes them realize new potentials that they have for themselves. 
And so you think of what good your speech might do in the life of another person. Uh, Scott Hubbard goes on to say, As a simple first step, consider stopping for a moment the next time you are about to enter a conversation and take up a question and a prayer. The question, what does this person need? And then the prayer, Lord, keep corrupting, corrupting words from coming out of my mouth. Fill my mouth with grace. Then Hubbard suggests, walk into the conversation remembering that you, weak, struggling you, have grace to give. In God's hands, your words can become a means of carving a brother or sister into the image of Christ. And so, as we look at the power of our words, we have to recognize our words have tremendous power for harm, but they also have tremendous power for good. The goal of all of our speech and especially in our interactions on social media, should come from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so I would ask us to challenge ourselves every time we get ready to post something on social media uh, or to, to tweet or retweet or pass something along, stop and ask ourselves the question, does this glorify God? If we can do that, it will make a tremendous difference in our world and in our culture. Now, true righteousness also requires us to take a stand against evil and to take a stand for righteousness. The psalmist continues to say, The righteous person is one who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. We often don't understand what this word vile means, but the literal meaning is rejected, cast away, or cast off. So that is, a vile person is one who is rejected by God, and they are rejected precisely because they don't fear God. They stand in opposition to what God stands for. So the idea of a vile person is not someone who is, is sinning or disobedient necessarily, but a person who deliberately rejects the idea of being obedient. It's not just that they give in to temptation themselves, but they boast about their sin. They're proud of their sin. So a vile person is not just a person who's horribly evil. It's a person who opposes righteousness, a person who would ridicule attempts to be righteous, uh, who would make fun of those who are righteous. And our culture today often admires and promotes these type of people, people who want to uh, break the boundaries of what is considered decent so that they can shock us, so that they can achieve you know, fame in our culture. Uh, Alan DeShenu writes that in Corinthians, Paul was describing three types of people. He says that, first of all, Paul was writing to the sinners. These were people in the church at Corinth who were disobeying God's word. They, they were slipping into sin. But then Paul writes to enablers. These were people who indulged and encouraged the sinners. They actually excused them and you know, gave them a pat on the back, so to speak. But finally, Paul writes to the avoiders. 
These were those who knew what the sinner was doing. They knew it was wrong. They knew that the enablers were helping, but they did not do anything about it. So if we are going to be righteous people, we cannot be avoiders. We have to confront evil. We have to make sure everyone knows we are aligned with the good. Now, we would hate to think of ourselves as making evil respectable. But one critical area where we see this is many times in our embrace of political leaders. We've reached the point where we support a political leader regardless of whether he or she is vile or not, regardless of whether they fear God or not, if they promote the same political viewpoints and values that we have. We see these political leaders as successful And so we begin to think of them as clever rather than as vile. John Steinbeck wrote a novel called The Winter of Our Discontent. And in the novel, he has a main character named Ethan Alley Hawley. And he is from an old New England family who once was very wealthy. But Ethan uh, finds himself poor working in a grocery store as just a a simple clerk. Now, he's always prided himself on his integrity, on his honesty, on, on what the family name means. But he finds those around him who are questioning him about this and telling him that, you know, the family name means nothing if there are not the wealth and the riches to go along with it. And so he is, is tempted, and he comes up with a plan where he's going to restore his family's wealth and honor. And it has three parts. He's going to rob a bank, and then he's going to use the money from that robbery uh, to buy the grocery store that he currently works at. The store is owned by an immigrant who's in the U.S. illegally. So he's going to turn this immigrant in to the police and then use the money to buy the store when the immigrant is uh, forced out of the country. And then he has an idea of cheating his best friend out of a piece of land uh, that he can use for his own purposes. But John Steinbeck has this character to, to speak the words where he's talking about how we view men who, who proceed in this way. And he says, if it succeeds... They will be thought not as crooked, but as clever. To most of the world, success is never bad. I remember how when Hitler moved unchecked and triumphant, many honorable men sought and found virtues in him. So Steinbeck has his character to argue that in society, men judge you by whether you are successful, not by whether you are honest or not. And so we have to be careful that we stand up for what is righteous, that we don't simply promote people who are are successful, who are succeeding. Now, when we don't revile evil men, we make evil respectable. We set up a society that does not fear God, and because it does not fear God, it doesn't respect God. A holy society requires a fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion 
in the fear of God. And so we have to uh, join with the psalmist. And as righteous people, we have to avoid the vile. We don't want to tolerate the vile person, but we want to honor those who fear the Lord. The psalmist also goes on to say, true righteousness requires integrity. He writes, the righteous man is one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. We can see a contrasting example of this. Uh, Edward Seward, he was eating in a Waffle House and he tipped his waitress, Tonda Dickerson. He tipped her with a lottery ticket that he had bought. And he did this numerous times uh, where he would buy a lottery ticket and he would use it as a tip. Well, this particular lottery ticket happened to be a winner. And the waitress won 22 or won $10 million. Now, later on, he sued her, wanting to get some of this money back, claiming that she had agreed to buy him a truck with it. And so we see he wasn't really honoring his commitment. But we see a contrasting view in the actions of Thomas Cook. Back in June, he won $22 million in a Powerball lottery. But... Almost 30 years ago, in 1992, he and a friend had agreed that they would both play the lottery, and if either one of them won, they would split the others. They would split the winning with the other. Thomas Cook uh, ended up winning about $12 million in a lump sum payment. He split this, kept $6 million, gave $6 million to his friend, you know, how many people, if they found themselves in that situation, would uh, honor their commitment? But the psalmist tells us a righteous person is one who keeps his commitments, even when it hurts. And so our culture doesn't often value this. But as Christians, we need to be very careful. We need to be careful about the commitments that we make in the first place. And then once we make the commitment, we need to do our best to honor it. The psalmist ends Psalm 15 by talking about uh, two situations in which the righteous person excels, and that is handling money and handling power. The psalmist writes, The righteous person is the one who lends money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Now, the righteous man uses his money to help others rather than to benefit himself. And the righteous man uses his power to aid the powerless and the innocent rather than enrich himself. Now, we have to be careful. I don't think this is telling us that it's unchristian to loan money at interest, that Christians should not be involved in banks or finance companies or things like this. But what it's telling us is it's setting forth a principle how do we as righteous people, how do we react when we see someone else in need? A righteous person does not enrich himself at another's expense. He doesn't take advantage of the other's situation to uh, do something that is good for himself. The righteous person is one who realizes we are stewards of what God has given us. God blesses us but it's so that we can use that blessing to benefit others. 
in Ephesians, Paul encourages the Ephesians to work. And he says, work so that you'll have money, which makes sense to us. But he goes on to say, so that you will have money not to spend on yourselves, but so that you will have money to give to those in need. Ephesians 4.28, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. John Wesley had three rules for how a Christian deals with money. His rules were make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Now, we would certainly agree with the first one. It's a good thing to make all you can. And most of us would probably agree with the second, save all you can. We may not do it, but we would say it's probably a smart idea. But John Wesley said, make all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. He felt a great conviction about this, about how we as Christians are to use the money and the financial resources that God has given us. And this came from an episode in his, his early life when he was a young professor. He was making a, a decent living as a professor, and he had recently bought a number of pictures for his uh, apartment where he was living. And later, he met a, a poor woman, and it was wintertime, it was cold, she had no coat. And so he felt sorry for her, and he was going to buy her a coat. And he reached in his pocket to get his money, and he realized he had spent all of his money on these pictures. He had no money to give to her. He writes uh, that he, he writes later, he said, I have adorned my walls with money that might have kept this poor woman from the cold. Haven't I bought these pictures with this woman's blood? And I think about that. How many of us would take that attitude? You know, how many of us would take the attitude that we are taking something that could be used for others and we are hanging it on our walls, we are using it to, to uh, you know, feed our stomachs, whatever it might be. Wesley's view was that money was an excellent gift, a gift of God. He writes, in the hands of his children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment for the naked, a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. So God has given us money to be used for others, and the righteous person realizes that. The righteous person also realizes we don't exploit the poor. We don't exploit those who are desperate. You know, Galatians tells us just the opposite. We are to bear one another's burdens, and that will allow us to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the psalmist ends this by saying, the righteous person is one who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. That is, true righteousness treats power as a gift from God. It treats power as something to be stewarded and used for God's purposes and not to enrich ourselves. Andy Crouch writes, Power is a gift from God, and we are called to be stewards of the power that we have. We can misuse power by abusing it and by neglecting it, by doing nothing. So the righteous person doesn't shrink from using power, but they use power to see that justice is done. And, you know, 
we're used to this idea of righteousness in being, uh, you know, specific acts that we avoid. We're not really used to the idea of righteousness as being something that deals with how we use money or how we use power. But the psalmist makes that point. All of us have power in our lives, power to impact others, power to control others, to influence others. And so we have to decide, are we going to use that power for others? Are we going to use the power for ourselves? So in Psalm 15, we have a picture of what the righteous life looks like. And God sets forth a very specific list of things that we can bring into our lives in order to practice righteousness. But the last part of the psalm, it ends by giving us a promise. It says, Whoever does these things will not be shaken. We can look at our society today, and there is a lot of shaking that's going on. We see these situations with the corona pandemic, and we see the economy going into a free fall. And, you know, there are so many things we don't know what's going to happen. But the Bible makes it clear if we will obey God, if we will live righteous lives, we will reap the reward for that. We can live a life in which we will not be shaken. And so I encourage you as you go throughout this next week, ask God how you can put these principles to work in your life. And that way you can have true righteousness. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for what you've taught us. And we ask that you would help us to pursue righteousness, the righteousness that you have set forth in your word, that we may be glorifying to you in your name. Amen.